Welcome to Better in Real Life, a podcast from the Trestle Collective. I'm your host, Jonathan McGinney, and in this series, I like to have conversations with good folks doing some interesting, pretty cool things. In this episode, I chat with Amanda Kristovich, a sports reporter with Front Office Sports who focuses on college athletics. She's one of my favorite followers on Twitter, not in the least because of her remarkably diverse collection of sports allegiances. So your sports allegiances, obviously you're, you're a Yankees fan. Very weird. Yeah, yeah. I'm a Yankee fan because of my stepdad. I'm a Saints fan because of my dad. Okay. And I mean... NBA, like, I'm not huge into NBA, mm-hmm. but, like, I grew up a Lakers fan. Sure. Like, I don't really see the draw of the Knicks at this point. Well, so who does? Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean... exactly. So I'm not going to switch that. And then, like, I liked the Kings in high school. Now that I'm in New York, I don't mind watching the Rangers. But, um, yeah. And then I went to Georgetown. So for yeah. basketball, obviously, it's very depressing. So I just enjoy that you have strategically picked the teams that are opposed to mine. So you've got this. I'm a Celtics fan and you're you're a Lakers fan. Okay. I okay. live near. I mean, I'm a Patriots fan, but the Falcons are the Falcons and you're a Saints fan. Right. And obviously my my true love is the Red Sox. So that is really not... well, yeah wait so what is the boston connection or my mom's family is from maine so i you know when you're a kid in the 80s and you were growing up in augusta georgia none of the georgia teams minus the hawks for a period of time were good so right. patriots had a super bowl run the red sox had the world series in 86 so i just kind of gravitated to them and um did not realize what I was getting myself into at that time. So like all of, and I'm really, I mean, the Patriots Falcons Super Bowl, I had to keep my head down for like two weeks at work. After. Yeah. What did you, how did you kind of. Well, there, that? there was a guy from New Hampshire who uh, he worked at the same agency I was at at the time. And I remember I was up in Atlanta cause we had an Athens office and then Atlanta office was the main one. And I was up in Atlanta and I think I walked by him and he and I made eye contact and we just kind of nodded. And then he did like the quiet because we we're like, we can't say anything for like two weeks because everybody was so excited for the Falcons. Yeah. Yeah. No, I re- well, I remember that Super Bowl because I didn't know who to root for because I hated <laughs> both teams. Um, and I just kind of was like, well, I'm just going to sit here and like shove guacamole in my mouth and not say anything. <laughs> right can i can somehow they both lose can they just get into overtime and play yeah like, that that a, is that a possibility oh man yeah i remember yeah. well and my i was in my friends um i was at my friends like sort of super mini super bowl party and she was a big patriots fan so we were just i was just kind of like whatever you're like i'm just gonna be quiet so, I'm just going to sit here and enjoy the food and roll my eyes every time literally anyone scores a touchdown. So. Right, right. Now, this, so. is a good, this is a good summer uh, for New York baseball, though, I feel like. Well, it was up until a few weeks ago. Well, I mean, true. like the Yankees were steamrolling. They were the best team in baseball. I was at um, the most recent Yankees Red Sox series in New York right mm-hmm. before the All-Star break. I was at one of those games where the Yankees just totally blew the socks out. I actually went to the standing room only section. Um, I don't know if like the Braves do that, but yeah, they've got something over like 
by the little chop house area they've got. Yeah. So it's like, it, it was in like left center and it's standing room only. And they have like, you know, places where you can like put your drinks and it comes like the pass comes with like a free Bud Light. And um, it was, it was really fun, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like I, I wouldn't want to do it for a game where I wanted to pay attention. Right. Um, which I mean, but like Yankee socks, that was the only way I was getting in. But right. um, you know, just for a regular kind of random Friday or Saturday evening game where you don't really care who the opponent is, I would highly recommend it. It's very, it's yeah. Like I, I was pleasantly surprised because like I've done all manners of baseball. I've sat, you know, up in the four hundreds. I've had like decent seats. My parents got like dugout seats a couple times, you know. So, but it was really fun. Like, yeah, you know, I don't know. but I mean, but they're they, everybody hits a lull. They're going to get in. I mean, you're up by like, what, 10, 12 games in the East. You'll make the playoffs oh. and you'll have the bye. I know, but they like they I don't know. I'm just they're like choking. They, they've got pitching injuries. Judge is the only one who's hitting now. I, I don't know. But yeah, the Stanton trade has not the Stanton trade doesn't seem to have paid off. And I can't figure out what happened to him. He got really hot like at the beginning of the season and now I don't, I don't know what's going on, but um, we'll see. It is what it is. Either way. It's, it's no matter how far they make it, it's just fun to be in New York city when the Yankees are in the playoffs. Like last year, even though they were only in the playoffs for one game, it was still really like really fun. It's, it's a cool experience. So I'm trying not to be too greedy. Well, Amanda and I may not see eye to eye when it comes to our sports fandom, but I really enjoyed learning about her pathway to sports journalism. Born in Los Angeles, her love of sports and a desire to stay connected to the games she loved pushed her toward a career with the media. So, I mean, I played baseball my whole like childhood up until high school, and I played on boys' teams, obviously, because there was just baseball for boys, softball for girls. I didn't want to play softball. And when I got to high school, they wouldn't give me a tryout um, for the baseball team, even though we weren't a particularly good team at my high school. So all the guys I played Little League with, like, got on the team. But, you know, that was – it's literally either lawsuit or find a different sport at that time. There was no baseball for all. There was, you know. So I ended up running track and I really loved it. Um, I ran for like two or three years and then like I had a a series of injuries and um, around, around the time I was running track, I was thinking about journalism because I always like writing was always one of my passions. And I was thinking to myself, well, I got kicked out of one sport because of my gender. This other sport isn't going so well at this point because of my injuries. How can I stay in the sports world you know, if I'm not an athlete myself and journalism was kind of always like intriguing to me because writing was always a passion of mine. So I ended up taking like, I, I didn't have enough room in my schedule in high school to take the official intro to journalism class. Mm-hmm. So I convinced the teacher to let me come in like after school and take the class myself <laughs> and just oh, like wow. learn how to you know, and, and, and then I didn't have enough room in my schedule to be on the paper, but I just like wrote some articles for them. And um, yeah, that, so that, and I, so I was like, I, I love this. I want to keep doing it. Um, so then when I got to college, I sort of, you know, I, I went 
really deep into like writing for the paper, trying to get internships. And that's kind of how, how it came to be. Now, one of the things I always am, when I talk to different folks who are in the industry, uh, who are, who are writers and work in the media, was there a moment where you, you kind of knew I don't want to say that this came easy to you, but like when I talk to, to writing, particularly to people who aren't writers or aren't in the industry, and the, like my wife will tell me the prospect of writing 500 words break, makes me break out into a cold sweat. Well, for me, I enjoy <laughs> it. You know, like yeah. let's, I can knock that out in an hour. No big deal. When did you sort of notice that it kind of, there was a flow, it kind of came more naturally to you? Well, it's funny because I always loved writing and felt like writing came relatively naturally, but reporting um, I love talking to people. I love learning new things, but just reporting was very nerve wracking for me in the beginning. I remember my first like major internship was at USA Today and I had the most incredible experience there. I mean, it was a great summer in DC where their headquarters were. So that's where I was working out of. There was so much to cover, so many things going on. And they really like, gave me incredible opportunities to write features and news and all of this stuff. But the whole summer I was so nervous talking to people and doing interviews and reaching out to people. And I, it, I was really stressed out because I wanted to be good at it, but I, I was so anxious to, to do the reporting because it was something I hadn't done a ton of before. And then I kind of thought to myself is maybe like, reporting isn't for me. Like, I don't know. Um, so I kind of took a break from it my senior year and tried more kind of like the marketing social media side, but I was able to get another internship after I graduated at the wall street journal. I don't know how I convinced them to let me write for them, but that summer was really when again, another great internship, great opportunities. And, and I kind of got in a better, like I, I don't know what that was. <laughs> Sorry, uh, you can cut that out. <laughs> New York sounds like it's not ambiance, right? Yeah. Um, I at the Wall Street Journal, it was like my second internship, so I had a little bit more experience under my belt. And then I just sort of, kind of looked up one day and realized, like, oh, this feels natural. Like the reporting side feels more natural, and obviously, you still get nervous for certain types of interviews, high profile people, or like, a, you know, potentially sort of adversarial interview, I guess you could say, but um, yeah, it, it's, it, it felt a lot more natural. And I was like, okay, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Mm. Cause I, I had always wanted to do it, but I was worried I wasn't good enough at it. Right. And that's always still a worry. Of oh, course, but I mean, the, the number of times I write something, whether it's for our website or for even for a client or anything like that, I sit there and go, is this good? Like, and I've been doing yeah. this 20 something years and I'm like, this doesn't feel good. And then, and then you read something by like, if I read something by like Wright Thompson, I sit there and go, oh God, I am not good. Oh, well, you can't compare yourself to Wright Thompson. <laughs> right. Well, you know what I mean, but like, yeah, yeah, it's like, oh gosh, I really dropped the ball here that I'll never be this good. Yeah. 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 Well, was it at the journal that you got that bug for doing college sports business or for doing the business side of sports? Because that is a unique niche. I mean, you know, you you dream of like being the beat writer for like the Lakers or something. But I mean, sports business is that that is a unique little place to find a home in. Yeah, I, I honestly it's just funny. I never really did the beat writing thing. 
when I wrote for my college newspaper, I was doing columns about professional sports, jumping around, writing NFL, Major League Baseball stuff. Um, at USA Today, obviously, they have a very national focus, and they also are interested in the intersection of sports and politics. So we did a bunch of, I did a bunch of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the journal, it's obviously very enterprise driven. Um, so I've never really done beat writing and, and I kind of realized early on, I didn't want to, because mm. I love being a fan. Um, I love being able to like be a fan of the games, but when covering wins and losses for the rest of my life is not a very enticing prospect to me. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm much for my career. I'm much more interested in getting into the intersection of sports and law, sports and politics, you know, um, sports and culture. So sports business was a way to do that, A. But B, it was the only type of journalism that was hiring when I got out of grad school in May of 2020. Because that was the only area of sports where there was news. Um, At the time, all the news was, look how much money everyone's losing. Right. Um, so it was almost it was also a bit of a necessity, but the college sports piece came when I was at Georgetown because I worked in the athletic department mm-hmm. and I just saw like how interesting um, that area of sports was. And then I just got really lucky um, that, you know, the all the NIL stuff, you know, started happening shortly before I got on the beat. Um you know, not, not that NIL itself began, but the, it it became an inevitability, I guess. Right. So there were storylines kind of brewing. The Alston case was brewing it. So it was just a really good um, time to cover that sort of thing. Right. And it hasn't necessarily slowed down either. I mean, no, never a slow news day on this beat. It's unbelievable. So, you know, thinking about that, well, actually, let me ask this real quick, because you you mentioned this and because I like doing long form writing and you mentioned USA Today had that experience. There's a lot of enterprise writing. Do you like doing longer form pieces or really diving into one particular topic or something and then, you know, breaking it up over a series or maybe putting together something that is twenty five hundred, three thousand words long? Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't get to do like you know, super long magazine features for, you know, because USA Today and the journal were both newspapers and front office sports. I think the longest story I wrote was like around 2000 words. Um, But that was a while ago. I mean, I'm really into features and I'm really into enterprise, but it's just like newspaper, more newspaper word count of like max 1500. Yeah. Um, But I did a one year of NIL series, um, which was five features between six and a thousand words and it was like every day for a week so i i love i love that i just think i think enterprise journalism is like the best type honestly um it's you know because covering breaking news is exhilarating but it's exhausting too it's exhausting (laughs) And, but, but really there's just such, it's such a privilege to be able to like, really like talk to people, get to know them, get to know a story, get all the details. It's, it's really such a privilege. So yeah, enterprise is definitely my favorite type of journalism. Since Amanda was kind enough to share some time with me, I absolutely had to pick her brain about the seismic changes in the college sports landscape. 
From TV rights to realignment, college sports is going through a significant upheaval, and who better to walk us through the changes than someone who covers it every day. I know that right now that the big focus is on media rights, but to me, I feel like it's it's all, I mean, it's all connected. A lot of the media rights focus is because you've got realignment going on. You've got OU and Texas right. coming to the SEC. You've got USC and UCLA going to the Big Ten. What does, we know ESPN is out now for, for Big Ten, which is going to create all sorts of new opportunities for, for viewing uh, Big Ten football. What does ESPN do now? Yeah, so a uh, great question. This is actually a story that uh, my colleague AJ Perez and I broke two days ago about ESPN's next plans. They are going to be pursuing the NCAA championships. So they have, right now they have that package of 29 championships for it's like $34 million a year for all of them, including women's March Madness. Um, women's March Madness alone, by the time that deal expires at the end of 2024, could be worth between 81 and 112 mil- million by itself. Right now it's bundled for 34 million with 28 other properties. Wow. So, yeah. So ESPN is very interested in, um, they've, I mean, they've just shown that they're very interested in women's sports in general, and they put a lot of investment into Women's March Madness this year in terms of elevating coverage, creating a mega cast. Um, So it it makes sense that they would want to try to re-up with that property, um, which is only growing, um, because a lot of the men's sports have plateaued in terms of viewership. Women's sports are on the up and up. So if you want to invest, it's like, okay, do you shell out for the property that's already huge or do you get in on the ground floor of a new property? Um, So they're very interested in that. They're also interested in renewing college football playoff and they're interested in looking at big 12 and Pac-12. Well, that was my next question is, does that Big Ten move create a little more leverage for your Big 12 and your Pac-12 as they're trying to figure out where do we go? How do we cash in on media rights? Because that was part of the reason USC and UCLA left. Yeah, I think um, I've seen sort of two like opinions on this. On the one hand, folks are saying it could be better for the Big 12 and the Pac-12 because you know, ESPN has more dollars that they could spend with them. But on the other hand, now the other networks are less, you know, are less incentivized to join the bidding for the Big 12 and the Pac-12. So it's possible that the price, those conferences might not be able to drive their prices up in the bidding because ESPN might be the only one legitimately interested in them. Um, so, you know, that will be interesting to sort of see how that lands, but I, I you know, of course the component we really have to think about is streaming. Um, I'm very curious to see particularly, you know, cause the PAC 12 and the big 12 both have new commissioners in the last, you know, year, and both of them come from outside of college sports. Right. So I'm interested to see what they can come up with as far as, you know, Apple, Amazon, you know, who are shelling out big in sports. Um, So that might be a route for them to get some major dollars. Um, So I'm I'm curious, you know, and the Pac-12 is going to start negotiating when 
the Big Ten rights are are completed. That's what the yeah. commissioner said a couple of weeks ago. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, and I kind of wonder, you know, between this, between realignment, between the NIL, that I mean, this is going to sound kind of weird because we're we've already had so much change. But I feel like we're on the cusp. Like we're right at the edge of like significant structural change. Like whether it's a super conference or whether it is. Uh, uh, players being unionized or there being some sort of salary component. Do you feel like we're right at the, the doorstep of something that is very big and very different? Yes. Yes. Um, I think it's become very clear that the big 10 and the SEC are going to be the, the power to, um, it, it's going to be SEC and ESPN versus Big Ten and Fox. Hmm. The money that is flowing to those conferences, it is now impossible to call it amateur sports. It's been impossible for a long time, but it's really impossible now. Um, so when you add that with the, the sort of legal landscape where the National Labor Relations Board and the Third Circuit are both considering cases that could potentially make athletes become eligible to be employees. It's not a question of whether or not the conferences and the schools want to pay them. Right. It's a question of the fact that they might not have a choice. Right. Right. And that could still take a few years, but, um, you know, I mean, there was a survey that ESPN did um, a couple of weeks ago where they interviewed like all of these sort of college football stakeholders and 82% of them expect that players will get some sort of revenue sharing in the next decade. Wow. Regardless of whether they want to do that, they understand it's an inevitability. Mm -hmm. Well, and to show you that a lot of these programs don't have as much control as they think they have or would like to have, I think I was, I saw yesterday that there is the USC collected that's getting started and it's against the wishes of the university and the, and the program, but you really, and they're going to pay a set flat salary essentially to, right. to these players. And you can't really stop that when, when you get in the collective world. No, you can't. Um, and I think there's sort of a larger picture that a lot of people are missing with the collectives because everyone's talking about how the collectives are, you know, mass pay for play, it's recruiting inducements, it's against NCA rules, it's, you know, sure. But, but really what the collectives are showing us is that there is a market to pay players for their athletic ability. That's it. There is tons of money in this space and there are people who want to pay players for playing football or basketball or whatever sport on a specific team. Mm -hmm. So given that there's a market for that, given that there is interest in that, how do you stop it? Well, and essentially what killed SMU football in the 1980s is now we're transitioning toward that being, well, that's just what it is. Right. Yeah. right. Um, the most burning question I have for you related to media rights, um, Will it be considered a crime if the Big Ten gets the CBS intro music that they've had for the SEC? <laughs> Ooh, that would be 
That would be petty. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. That would be petty. Uh, I, I can't. If I were the Big Ten, I wouldn't want that. Because you, right. you know, you want you want to create your own brand, and that that inter so integral to the SEC, right? I can't imagine that they would want to do that, but it would be it would be very petty. Better in Real Life is a production of Trestle Collective. It's hosted by me, Jonathan McGinty, with original music and editing by Joe Van Hoos. For more, visit TrestleCollective.com, and be sure to let us know what you think of the show.